This is The Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Welcome into the show. We have a special episode for you today. My name is Braden Dennis, as always, joined by the presidential and now expert interviewer, Mr. Simon Belanger. I haven't heard the chat. You interviewed Dan from the real estate show, The Canadian Real Estate Investor. What did y'all talk about? Yes, so we had a great chat. It was focusing primarily on REITs, so real estate investment trust, just because Dan is the co-host of the Canadian Real Estate Investor along with Nick Hill. And we had a great discussion because it kind of intersects both our podcasts and obviously theirs. They primarily focus on investing in actual real estate, Um, so rental properties. That's mostly what Dan and Nick will do. But REITs do offer an opportunity for people like you and I, a lot of people listening that may not have the funds to invest in real estate directly but it offers them the opportunity to still be able to invest whether it's office space uh, all different types of commercial industrial Um, we even talked about all different kinds of you know sub REIT sectors if you'd like to call it where the investment opportunities are maybe a bit more attractive in terms of yield comparing that with the cap rate so a metric that's often used when talking about uh, real estate for investors when they're actually investing in that so it was a great conversation and I'm sure listeners will love hearing Dan Dan is uh, very knowledgeable on the topic and uh, brought some great insights to the podcast I did my research of course I always like to do it uh, but it was a great chat with Dan Uh, For people, though, I would just keep in mind this was recorded during the holidays, so the REIT market has changed a little bit. It's definitely not as depressed as it was. We're kind of seeing a little bit of a rally, generally speaking, right now. So just keep that in mind to put a little bit of context there. REITs got smoked in the year of 2022, down 31%. It was the worst performing asset class in the U.S. and Canada. Dude, have you seen online? It's like ridiculous. It's, it's shocking seeing some of these numbers like Zolo, House Sigma, these all these like tools online. Have you seen the like before and after of buying and selling uh, of like GTA real estate? Yeah, I have. And I think the, for the most part, it's related around the GTA, right? I think pe- that's where people are taking the, the biggest hit where they, they bought at the peak and now are selling at a loss. And I think Vancouver too. But uh, yeah, it's a bit disheartening. Definitely, you know, feel bad for people. But again, you know, you FOMO and that's that's what you get, unfortunately. I wholeheartedly agree. And look, if you are from the the GTA or Ontario or any major developing city center, I'll call it, in, in this country, you have only seen the property values go up and up and up and up and to see like a burlington 2.1 mil- burlington ontario 2.1 million dollar house sold at the pe- peak then sold again recently for like 1.6 we're seeing this it's like like 500,000 dollars 300,000 here on like 6 month flips like that <laughs> that didn't go as planned did it and uh look it, it it's it's sad but 
I think the lie that's been sold around here is that that asset class just goes up and up and up and has no risk. It's just a fugazi fugazi story that's been told, and uh, this is the reality. It's as harsh as it may be. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's I I obviously I feel for people that overextended themselves are in a tough situation right now, especially if they relied on information that. You know, for example, the Bank of Canada governor who was saying in 2020 that rates would stay low for a very long time. They got into variable uh, rate, not understanding fully how they worked. And I know mortgage brokers, uh, you know, there's some very good ones out there. And I'm sure the good ones and most of them are good. They do explain how the product works. But explaining how it works and the consumer actually understanding how it works, I think they're two very different things. And I've had discussions online on Twitter uh, with some mortgage brokers about that and they were pushing back and I said look it's not that I'm saying mortgage brokers don't explain it I'm saying that they might be explaining it but the clients don't necessarily understand the full implications behind it and just being told what by various people like you just said that real estate always goes up so even though their payment might sound pretty high they barely meet the stress test, for example. People have this false sense of security, buy these home at uh, really high prices, and now, unfortunately, they're paying the price. Well said. All right, well, let's get into your conversation. You guys are speaking about Canadian real estate and real estate investment trusts. I'm going to be soaking it up like a sponge when this comes out, so uh, let's get into it. Okay, so welcome to the Canadian Investor Podcast, Dan. It's actually uh, the first time you're here. We played originally an episode, uh, the first episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast that obviously is hosted by you, Dan Foch, and Nick Hill, uh, but haven't had the chance to have you on the podcast and actually interact with you. So I'm pretty excited to do that and talk about REITs today. Yeah, happy to be here. It's an honor and a privilege, and uh, I feel a little bit uh, like I have big shoes to fill, given that uh, that Bredo is actually absent today as well. Yeah, yeah, we won't have Nick either, but uh, definitely encourage anyone who hasn't listened to the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast to give it a listen. Uh, It's fantastic. You guys know what you're talking about, and what I really like is... You also go over the basics, but talk about some more complicated stuff. And you have some episodes where I think uh, you guys went over some real estate terms that are really useful so people can make use of those older episodes. I think it's really useful. Anyone wanting to get into real estate, whether it's investments or I think just anyone curious, right? Real estate curious would be good, too. Absolutely. For sure. And I think, you know, it's something that we discuss so much in Canada and we have a lot of it, even in the equities market, a lot of exposure to it, pension funds as well. And it's a huge piece of our GDP composition. We also try and, and really be like full scope in, in the real estate space. So go all the way from macro all the way down to the tiny little details and the minutia of real estate investing. Um, so hopefully, I mean, I think the macro piece, you guys talk about it a lot on here too. I think it's important if you don't get the macro right, then the micro doesn't really matter. The details don't really matter. Right. So we, we try and touch on that regularly as well and, and make sure that we contextualize why that matters for real estate investing. Yeah, no, exactly. But before we get started, people don't see that, but I have to say Dan has an FTX baseball cap on i just realized it a bit earlier i can't believe you got your hands on that yeah they uh i i have quite the collection of uh of bankrupt i guess we call them dead co's dead co dad hats so and this was the newest one to my collection not tech technically a dead co yet but uh but on the brink and uh i figured i'd get it while it was too soon a lot of people have said it's too soon but i'm sure uh 
I mean, it's it's a good collection to have. But let's get started here. I know we usually at this time of year, we get a lot of new listeners. So we'll talk about REITs. REITs are real estate investment trusts. And we'll talk about the basics. And then we'll also talk about some of the potential value you can find in REITs right now. Um, and also look at higher levels for specific subsectors because real estate investment trusts, there's all different kinds of them, what type of metrics to look at. And I'll even go over some of the ETFs that people might be interested in if they don't want to pick a specific REIT and just get exposure to the broad market. So first of all, let's look at the pros and cons of REITs versus real estate. So I'll start off here with the uh, pros and uh, we can kind of go back and forth for the uh, the REITs and then you can go for real estate. Does that work for you? Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing for read that comes to mind is that it's really accessible to anyone. So you don't need a large, large amount or large sums of cash to buy just a few shares of a REIT. Um, think about a type of investment that you'd be required if you wanted to buy, for example, an industrial property, right? It would be, I don't know how much, you probably know better than I do, but I'm sure it's in the six figures, right? If you wanted to get uh, started into a, a decent sized one. Especially if you're doing it as an investment. Like I think the real estate is accessible as a house for a lot of people and because you can get you can buy typically with five percent down as your primary residence. But we don't really like to think of the primary residence as an investment. And I know that's a little bit of a faux pas in Canada because everybody seems to think that it is, but it really is a savings vehicle and more of a liability, you know, functionally if you really examine it properly. Um the other piece is the diversification, right? One of the big keys in investing is diversification. And in real estate, as you know, a, a regular Joe, it's very difficult to diversify across multiple different asset classes. It's not like you can go buy an office building and go buy a bunch of ha- rental properties um, and then also buy some industrial. You might be able to in you know much smaller unit sizes or in very, very fringe sub-markets. But for the average person, I think it's very difficult to do. So REITs allow you the ability to diversify across multiple different asset classes, um, each of which, which we're going to get into, have their own pros and cons as well. Yeah, no, exactly. And it allows you to diversify also geographically, right? So there are some Canadian REITs that do have exposure outside of Canada. Not all of them. There are quite a few that are specific to Canada. I think that's a great thing. But again, it's very easy to invest in the U.S. and the U.S. stock market. So you have U.S. REITs if you want exposure there or a bit more internationally and also different subsectors that we don't have in Canada because we have what we're talking about around 22, you said. I, I knew it was around 20 REITs, I think, that are publicly listed. Yeah, I think it's low 20s. I think maybe 22. There's a couple a couple uh, stragglers that you don't really hear about. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think the another pro here, it's hands off, right? And you and Nick have talked about that a whole lot, you know, yeah. passive income from owning real estate as an investment where you have tenants, for example, it's not that passive. No. I mean, I, I can just remember about Nick talking about the whole bat situation. Right. <laughs> um, that was quite something else. And I know it cost him uh, a decent amount of money to you know, take care of that. And that's just an example, right, of some of the things you have to take care of if you do own those hard assets. For sure. I think a lot of individuals dismiss that investing in real estate is very much investing in a business and you do have to run the business of property. And, you know, when you're investing in a REIT, you have the opportunity to invest in somebody else's business so that you don't have to do a lot of those those 
more, you know, or focus on those more minute details. The other piece that you mentioned, you know, about diversifying geographically is real estate is very much an asset that is tied to the intrinsic value of location, right? The first principle in real estate is location, location, location. And there are locations that I really like to invest in that are very far from where I live. And so I would never be able to possibly manage an asset in that location if it wasn't for vehicles like REITs. And and so it also allows you to have that hands-off exposure to an asset geographically as well, to invest in places that you never would, you know, if you're bullish on Calgary, as an example, you can get exposure to a REIT that has exposure in Calgary and you can still live in Toronto or Ottawa or Vancouver, as an example. Um, oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah. I think the, the the last one here is the liquidity, right? It's Oh, yeah. And, <laughs> and you know, we, we discussed this before the episode as well. You know, the, one of the big differences between private equity funds and and real estate investment trusts, but the that that the public market nature allows you. I mean, real estate, and we're learning this right now, can often be a liquidity trap. The housing market is learning that right now. You know, when you're in a market that goes no bid for property, you still got to pay the mortgage on that thing every month. And if, or if you have a tenant, maybe that's not paying you rent, as an example, or you have a vacant unit, that's that's a that's an asset that you still has a liability, the debt attached to it, that you can't just go and sell. Whereas if you have a share in a REIT. It's far more liquid than than the actual real property, and the switching costs are far less, right? You're paying maybe nine bucks on the most expensive broker platform to to sell a block of shares, whereas you know you're paying five percent of the asset value, probably minimum, if you're offloading a, a property. Yeah, I feel like people forgot about the liquidity part in 2021, or I guess you know back half of 2020. 2021 and then the first couple of months of 2022 and then people are realizing right now when you see properties sitting on the markets for several months I mean it's not unusual uh, that yeah sometimes it's, it's good to have things that you can obtain cash for very quickly for sure I think one of the big blunders of and it, and it hasn't revealed itself as a blunder yet but this is kind of one of my forecasts is you know a lot of people were rushing into buying those staycation properties right uh, cottages, especially, and cottages are typically very illiquid. They they typically take you know on average two to three months to sell, and they drop to about two to three weeks to sell during COVID. And now we're getting back to that longer sales cycle, and those are costly assets. You got a lot of maintenance. You have very you have no income in a lot of cases, but but you know if maybe some people are Airbnb them or whatever, markets kind of evolved there. Um, but that's where these are you know, becoming liquidity traps. Whereas, you know, if your if your asset, if your REIT stock drops 20%, you can just offload it at a loss. In real estate, it's it's a loss on the books and it's also bleeding you out on a monthly basis. And you don't even really get the choice to lose money fast or slow in that respect. No, no, I completely agree. I was actually just looking for fun during the, the pandemic uh, because I'm in Ottawa and on the other side, there's a lot of cottages on the Quebec side that tip traditionally have been more affordable and then the prices just got all out of whack during the pandemic because everyone and their brother and sister wanted to buy a cottage that lived in Ottawa on the Quebec side here uh, so I, I can definitely understand what you're saying but you know maybe it'll be attractive in the next year or two because people will be forced to sell I definitely think so that's that's one of the asset classes that we're watching a lot is recreational property to see how that market evolves because it's where we anticipate there being a little bit of distress yeah because that's where someone would sell first right if they have uh, 
uh, a home, a primary residence, and then a secondary residence. Clearly, they're going to try to offload their secondary residence if they, they need to uh, come up with some cash. For yeah. sure. Yeah, and you can already see the fire sales of, of the recreational toys starting on Kijiji. Like, <laughs> I've been in the market for an ATV for, for years and just couldn't stomach the prices. And I had an alert set for a certain ATV at a certain price. And just a couple of weeks ago, it just started getting flooded with emails for all of these uh, ATVs. So I'm like, oh, I guess it's start. I guess the recession's finally here. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you'll have to talk uh, to Brayden because he was bullish on uh brp so uh was he i, yeah. I would yeah i mean they've done really well but you know i'm what? a bit There's, skeptical yeah they're going... just a, such a cool canadian company from my perspective yeah like, and, and they've just mastered they've mastered recreation like the new pontoon boats that they came i'm, yeah. I'm gonna digress here so so maybe we'll, we'll <laughs> okay we'll keep in. going we'll keep going we'll <laughs> stick to real estate uh maybe at the end if people want to hear us blab about that kind of stuff if you want to go over some of the pros of buying real estate, I didn't do cons because clearly, you know, if it's pros for actual real estate, buying the hard asset, it's going to be a con for the REIT here. Right. So do you want to talk to us how you can really maximize leverage investing in real estate versus REIT? For sure. Yeah. So for the most part, um, there are some exceptions, but REITs are capped on how much they can lever up because they in order to have that flow through, which is the real estate investment trust, which basically means that any dividend income that you earn goes to your balance sheet and you pay taxes on it. Um, they have to cap their their leverage at 50% typically. And similar to the way hedge funds have to have a hedge position or whatever it is, you know, legally to, to have that vehicle, they have to follow some rules. Consumers typically don't have the, the same rules. So consumers can often get into much bigger leverage positions and, you know, in, you can buy investment properties as high as 80% loan to value. Loan to value is the percentage of the purchase price that ends up being debt or mortgage. Um, usually you're seeing investors purchasing with, I want to say 70% loan to value would be a little bit more tame or responsible investing. But Canada isn't necessarily known for responsible investing, so the the lever up, bro down strategy is certainly prevalent in in uh, in rental properties here. I think that that's probably the primary advantage um, of of buying real estate directly. Um, you can find better deals, I would say, than what you know your large scale investors are buying. Once you get to a certain scale, the the cap rates tend to be the same, right? You're not getting the yields that you could go find in fringe market, uh, you know, some, some small, like we buy in Cornwall, Ontario, as an example. So, you know, we're, we can typically get 7% cap rates on, on stuff like that. Whereas REITs are buying, you know, assets that are very much in the, you know, in the multifamily space in the 4% cap rate range. A cap rate is a, is basically a yield um, valuation metric for, for real estate, which we can go through. It's your net operating income divided by the purchase price of the asset. Um, and so, you know, you, 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 lose a lot of the risk, I would say, like you, you know, when you get to the institutional scale, the returns are lower and the risks are lower, right? Low risk, low return, high risk, high return. Um, there's also a case to be made that you can lever up a bit, a bit more if you buy REITs, right? So you could buy REITs and use margin, use a bit of leverage that way. Yeah. So I just wanted to, to point that out because some people may say, oh, well, you know, you can still do that with buying REITs, but it is definitely not to the same level. I think most brokers probably like, 25, 30% tops uh, that they would allow. Yeah. But then, I mean, I guess if you, it, it depends, 
Like, because if you were to get 30% plus the 50% that the REITs levered in, because you are getting that leverage, I mean, on a yield basis, like you're you're probably actually going to get a better rate of return, right? Um, the trade-off becomes, you know, a lot of people in Canada buy or did for the past 25 years bought for capital appreciation. And maybe that's kind of the last piece that we can, we can add in there. Um, you know, you, you don't, you, you're not going to see that so much in, share value appreciation with REITs. And a lot of that's because the dividend obviously defers that growth. Yeah. And uh, you all obviously won't get margin call if you uh, you have a mortgage either. So that's something to keep in mind. But then again, I well, guess you could compare variables with margin calls uh, to some extent. Yeah. It is interesting, actually, because we are starting to see a lot of failed renewals, right? So in you're getting investors who their debt service coverage ratio or even homeowners who their income couldn't service the more could no longer service the mortgage in the current market and the lenders are saying we don't want to renew your mortgage and so what typically happens in a in a bull market which we've been in for real estate for the housing asset basically since the last time the market crashed 1994 probably was the the last major real bottom of the Canadian housing market um, since then, people typically step up in housing products. So they go from a one, you know, like a, a one bedroom condo to a three bedroom house to a four bedroom house over their life cycle. But they also step up in mortgage products. So typically, you know, you might, you know, over the past couple of years, you might have been stretching and, and you really wanted to get this investment. So you bought with a private lender and you're paying 10% interest. And then after a year, the property went up in value. Maybe you made some changes in. Re- improve the returns of the asset. And then you renewed your mortgage with a B lender and you dropped your interest rate to 6% or 7 or 5% even in, in, you know, in the past couple of years. And then, you know, or, or alternative scenario, you bought with a B and go to an A lender and you're getting basically the best rate that you could get in the market right now. So that was, that was before right now, what we're seeing is the opposite happening. People who had an A lender happening are actually moving down in the type of credit, the quality of credit, and therefore moving up in the interest rate that they have to pay because the A's won't take them anymore, so they have to go to a B, or the B's won't take them anymore, so they have to go to a private. And so these are major things happening. So, so the the margin call risk, I guess to say, is is not, you know, it's not uh, something that the real estate space is completely immune to. There is, it's just that it didn't seem apparent over the past. 25 years because, well, a rising tide lifts all boats, right? Everybody is a rocket surgeon for the past 20 years. Yeah. And just for the people who are not aware, so A lenders would be like big Canadian banks. B lenders would be what, like kind of credit unions that are still very reputable. And then private, not that they're not, but then you're getting into a whole other category, right? Yeah, there's sort of like two spheres of private. So your A's would be big six Canadian banks and then like First National and a couple of others. Um, B's would be credit unions, monoline lenders. Um, mix in a lot of cases will fall into that kind of B category or B plus category. And then private ends up very much being individual private. So like me lending money to you or vice versa. And a lot of people actually borrowing HELOCs and lending their money out as an example. So um, those are individual <laughs> yeah. private loans. Yeah. Okay, thanks for clarifying. So another pro, I think, buying real estate, I think there's a case to be made that you can find better deals, especially, you know, if you're thinking, you know, I've seen people, I've I've had that happen to me where I get notes in my mailbox and saying that they'll buy my property, you know, no realtor commission and anything like that. But I I know it's work. I've heard of people doing that and they actually manage to buy 
uh, investment properties or builders who just want to tear it down, build something new on it. So I, I think there is a case to be made that you can potentially find better deals um, as just buying the hard assets. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And and definitely gives you, I think, more control as well as an investor. Like I think that it would, um, it would like you, you know, with, you have really no control on the asset under management on the REIT side. That's like, right. yeah, but you got a couple of votes on your share, but that's really more company operational stuff rather than asset level decision making. Yeah. And I guess it provides the last point here, I think, unless you have another one, but last point here I'm thinking about is, uh, you have the opportunity to invest in underserved markets. I'm thinking Cornwall, you just mentioned. I'm going to go on a yep. limb and say there's not that many REITs that have properties in Cornwall. Maybe I'm completely wrong, but uh, that's kind of my impression. No, I think you'd be right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and if, if they did, like they wouldn't have massive, massive exposure. Like It'd be a tiny portion of their, their portfolio, right? That's it. Okay. Anything else you wanted to add? Well, yeah, I think yeah, I think on that note, right? Like, and and I mentioned this kind of in the a little bit, like the diversification of of the ge- uh, geography that REITs gives you as a benefit. If you are super bullish, specifically on one municipality, you can't get you know that you lose that that ability to go long that one municipality when you jump into a REIT product. Whereas if you are an individual investor and you say, okay, I want to invest in Calgary, which tons of people are emailing us now on the podcast um, about Calgary as an example, or a lot of interest in in Halifax or Atlantic Canada, especially. If you want to go and invest, if you're super bullish in that specific area, then you can't really get a REIT that maybe like Killam might be an example of one where they're, they're a little bit more Atlantic, but it's harder to get that very, very targeted exposure through a diversified asset fund. No, no, that's a good point. So any other pros that you can think of, or do we just want to move on and talk about the different categories of REITs? Yeah, might as well jump over to that um, because that does kind of give you a little bit of the specificity that that is lacking on the on the real estate on the geography side because there isn't there is no you know I mean there's in the U.S. there's New York there's a New York REIT that's like I think it's Empire State REIT uh, and it was like literally just the Empire State Building was their first asset but otherwise you're typically to, you're, if you're going to specialize you're going to specialize in a specific asset class so. We can go through the list here um, for those just discovering REITs. We can go over maybe the common types. So there'd be office, you know, an example, maybe allied REIT or dream office REIT, industrial, um, I guess, pure industrial Granite. real estate trust. Yeah, Granite yeah. would be another one. Retail, um, Rio Can probably would be the, the most notable one, although they're very much becoming a development play, I think. I don't know if there's anybody else you'd think yeah. of there. Well, uh, smart centers or yeah, yeah, I yeah. guess so. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think the interesting part about, and we can get a little bit more into it, but the interesting opportunity on the retail side is that a lot of these retail REITs own massive acreages in urban areas on major arterial roads, and so while they are retail REITs today, they're also development companies tomorrow, and and I think that's an important thing to note. The you know the best iteration of that to discuss would be talking about. Real Can Living, which is their development department. Okay, yeah, that's right. Next on the list here is residential, so multifamily stuff, so large-scale residential property. Um, that one's typically going to have the lowest cap rate on the list here. So cap rate, again, is that, that valuation metric that I had mentioned. Um, your multifamily on the high-rise side, like the best quality high-rise is going to be below 4% on a cap rate. So that's your net operating income divided by your purchase price. And so your cap rate there is probably between, let's say, 
high threes, let's say 4% to 5%. Whereas, you know, office mentioned before you're kind of in that, and this, these are national cap rates from Q3 2022 from CBRE's report. Um, downtown office is, you know, mid 5% to on the, the worst asset, the B grade asset would be in the low 7%. Um, Industrial is 4.8%. So that's probably the closest you're going to get to multifamily cap rates. Industrial would be 4.8 to 5.67%. And retail is where you get, you know, you're kind of like your 5.8 to high sixes, even, you know, let's say 5.8 to 7% on the, on the cap rates there. Yeah. And some alternatives are like, we're talking mostly about Canadian ones, but obviously some people may want to look at American ones. So retail, uh, there's national retail properties, uh, ticker NNN, there's realty income, Simon property group, different types of retail, but, uh, for people interested, those are kind of, uh, the ones that come to mind there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And then, and then quickly, like the, the remainder would be kind of your diversified REITs, um, healthcare specifically. So like a chart, well, would be a good, um, example there. I, I guess they wouldn't be healthcare. So they'd be more seniors living. Um, there are some, I think there yeah. is a healthcare specific REIT in Canada. Um, yeah, I think it's Northwest right. healthcare yeah. properties. Yeah. And then uh, lo- lodging and resorts. Just to touch back on diversified REITs. So diversified REITs, most REITs will tend to focus on a specific uh, kind of subsector, like you mentioned. But there are some REITs that will be pretty well diversified in terms of sectors. I don't think we really have some in Canada, but in the U.S., um, I know WP Carey is a pretty well-known one that has uh, pretty well diversified the things like industrial office retail and self-storage so that's just an example of one yeah i think dream probably would be so dream had that oh, global yeah, REIT before, right. but blackstone mm-hmm. blackstone bought the whole dream global REIT. so i mean we're pretty pretty good at at putting out good REIT products i think it was like six that was a 6.2 billion dollar acquisition i think but that was um 200 office and industrial properties across western europe uh, a lot of germany netherlands um and then canada as well another one i think you wanted to touch on a little bit was self-storage um, yeah, yeah and then data as well and in the states we see a lot of uh, mortgage reads in the in canada we have mix which is the similar way that somebody could publicly invest in a so they're the same vehicle almost that in the States, you'd have a mortgage REIT. In Canada, you have a MEC or a mortgage investment corporation where you can buy shares and it, it'll flow through to you. A lot of people do it. They're not as publicly traded as REITs, I would say, in Canada. But you, you'll you, these are often offers that people will get through wealth managers or whatever, and you can invest through your RRSP and stuff like that. Yeah. And mortgage REITs, uh, I've never really looked into them, but they are pretty much you know companies that will invest in a a vast amount of REITs and then they collect the interest on it, right? That's that's yeah. what they do, right? Uh, yeah, or they'll invest, like they'll take the money, they'll pool the funds and then they'll lend it out as debt, right? So there's like uh, NYMT is one that I used to invest in like and, and play with during COVID. Um, probably would not recommend anybody play with it because <laughs> you'll look at some of these these yields and they're just like crazy. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of some other ones like uh, ORC was like Orchid Capital. These are all like mortgage REITs that basically like they're they're basically your private lenders in the states. And in the states, it's definitely pretty wild west the way that they do. They're hard money lenders. A lot of these guys, right? So 
Yeah, exactly. And I think one that we skipped over, lodging, resorts. So you'll have breeds that uh, do kind of buy these type of properties. I don't have any one that comes to mind, but I know there are some that will own, for example, like a lot of real estate in Vegas. So they don't run the actual hotels. They own the just a property and then they rent out to whoever manages the hotel. Um, data REITs, you touched on them. We don't really have any data REITs. I know Allied Property REITs has... Um, a little bit of urban data centers, but they did say, I think it was in November, that they were looking at potentially selling that part of their portfolio to concentrate on the office real estate. So in the U.S., I mean, you do have some data reads. Uh, there is one play actually in Canada, aside from that. So BIP, Brookfield Infrastructure Partners, they do own some data reads. I think it's in South America. And then the U.S., you have... Uh, uh, DLR, so can't recall the name. So <laughs> Digital Realty Trust, there you go. Um, Equinix, another one. I think American Tower Reed also has some as well. Amazing. And the hotel side as well, which you just touched on there. I mean, that's a, a really interesting comparison for people who are, you know, if you're bullish on recreation or, or hotel lodging hospitality industry, you know, we get a lot of people and it's not something that we necessarily encouraged prior a ton on, on the, on the podcast. Um, although it is becoming easier to become an Airbnb investor in Canada and the States, the infrastructure is built out like so well, they have property managers and all of this stuff. Um, but you know, hotels are trading at, you know, seven over 7% cap rate. So if you're to buy a hotel, which none of us can afford to do, mm. but you know, those, those lodging REITs are buying assets that are seven plus percent cap rate and Airbnb is you're trying to get, okay, can you get, can I go get a seven plus percent cap rate on, on an Airbnb? Yes, but it's very, it's, or it's more management intensive than, than owning a REIT, right? And, and and I think that's where one of those good kind of comparisons evolves because that's much more of a service business on the real estate asset. Yeah, exactly. As you were talking about that, you kind of reminded me something I wanted to point out to listeners is that depending on the type of real estate, right, you're going to be looking at different type of rents. So I'm thinking here self-storage where you typically have a month by month rent, which it could be a plus or a negative depending what kind of environment. If you're seeing super high demand for self-storage or an inflationary period, you can actually increase your rents very quickly. Or on the other side, if you're seeing that there's a lack of demand, you can play with your, you have, you have prices that are a lot more flexible. Whereas if you own residential units, right, you're kind of locked into those long-term contract, which, you know, has its advantages, don't get me wrong. But I think that's something for people to understand is, you know, depending on the type of read, you'll have sometimes triple net leases, um, you know, or the short-term uh, rents that can be adjusted quite quickly but again you don't have that safety net you have a high turnover of tenants yeah and i think definitely worth thinking about in an inflationary environment like a triple net is the best position you want to be in when we're in an inflationary environment and management costs are accelerating um whereas you know in a multifamily side you those management costs are costs that you're seeing come out of your or, you know as a as an input cost to to providing the cert, the the product which is housing um, and your rents are indexed at what in Ontario two point five percent, but typically in, indexed at at below inflation right now in that's right in Canada. Yeah. So you don't have the revenue growth that correlates to the growth in costs. Yeah, and triple net for those who are not aware is just basically uh, the landlord 
doesn't pay any of the costs, essentially, right? right. It's the tenant yeah. that pays everything where it comes to maintenance. I think they also pay for uh, taxes, right? In those yeah. cases. TMI, so yeah. ta- taxes, maintenance, and insurance. There you go. So it's definitely an interesting, but that's that, that'll be certain types of properties um, that will have that. Now, as we're talking a bit more about uh, specific terms, I think it's good for people just so we go over a few important metrics that anyone looking at REITs should be aware of. Um, So I'm going to kick it off. I think these are the two terms, in my opinion, that are very, very important that you need to get familiar with. Uh, FFO, so fund from operations, and AFFO, which is adjusted fund from operations. So FFO is just net income uh, from, you know, you get the income statement, you get the net income that's uh, at the bottom of the line here, and you add back depreciation and amortization. That's simple because real estate, you have these accounting principle that reduces your income, but in reality, uh, the value of the real estate doesn't necessarily go down, right? So that's something that, you know, you kind of add back that in because it's a non-cash item. And then you remove any gain losses from the sale of the property and any interest income. Whereas AFFO, same kind of thing. And probably the one thing I'll say is, depending on the company, sometimes they'll be slightly different the way they calculate it because these are not official uh, measures. So they're non-GAAP or non-IFRS if you're in Canada. But AFFO, you just take the funds from operation, but you also factor in rent increases or another way of saying that is straight line rent, CapEx related to maintenance, and then routine routine maintenance amounts. So personally, I tend to prefer AFFO. Um, I don't know about you if there's one of the two that you like best or you prefer to looking at net operating income on a property property basis. Yeah, so I'm, I'm typically looking at really more... Like as long as the the technical analysis, like fundamentals, check out relatively well, you know, and I would I would probably defer to somebody like you or reading a, a post online <laughs> about that. Yeah, um, I'm typically looking more asset level. What are these? What's this organization doing? Where are their acquisitions? How are they? You know, repositioning existing assets or increasing revenue. Um, so it's you know not so much granularly like what on an asset by asset basis what's their net operating income but are they running efficient like that net piece really matters yeah um and then also like is the asset that they're holding doing well right now so you know i'll look a lot at vacancy rates because i think that that's that's probably the biggest thing right now on an on a asset level basis that's impacting the way that REITs are are you know where we're seeing the stocks tumbling a little bit because there's a lot of uncertainty around what's you know what how certain assets are going to perform for the next decade or two decades and that's typically the investment horizon for a real estate asset so you know as an example looking at industrial in canada there's you know most i don't think there's only a couple of markets that have vacancy over two percent as an example right victoria as an example, has vacancy of 0.1%. Vancouver's is 0.2%. Edmonton, I think, is the highest at 4.2% vacancy. And if you know, if you're that, that's the industrial space. Toronto is 0.3% vacancy, so below 1% vacancy on on the industrial assets. On the office side, you know, the tightest markets, I think, Victoria at 5.9% vacancy and Vancouver at 5.9% vacancy. Calgary being the highest at 27.5% vacancy in the office asset. So over a quarter of of office space in in Calgary is vacant. So 
looking at okay what what does this REIT have exposure to and are those assets that like there yeah there's a lot of lease up risk there's a lot of time that's going to take for them to maximize the returns that they're getting you know allied you used as an example they have uh you know Toronto class they they actually have their own asset class class I they call it in a lot of cases offices so industrial class I because it's a lot of brick and beam stuff they have a lot of converted old which is like that sexy space that tech companies really like yeah. um, which could be a good thing or a bad thing moving forward but Toronto's at ten percent office vacancy right now according to Collier's um, their Collier's national investment snapshot from uh, Q three of this year. Um, so again, like, are we seeing, are these trends that I'm happy with as an investor? Um, n- no, if I was, if I had owned those shares for the past several years, but these are also things where I'm looking at, okay, the market's pricing in these vacancies and allied as an example, I, I, you know, I liked for the the past little while because I believe a little bit in the, the resurrection of the workplace. I think that their space is going to be set apart by comparison to a lot of the other stuff in, in the urban markets. And, uh, and so those are really the, the, you know, are they running assets efficiently and is the asset a good position in a good position in the market right now? Yeah. And obviously we, you talked about, um, vacancy rates, but you can just look also the opposite of that occupancy rate. So same, yeah. same thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> just the opposite of it. If people are ever getting started into looking at it, um, I would say for me, the, in terms of metrics, the one thing I do like to look at and, it's I'll take either funds from operation or AFFO or both, and I'll look at the payout ratio for the distributions because that's really important. You want to make sure that distribution or dividend, but they call it distribution for REITs, is sustainable. So that is probably the one thing I would recommend to people to, at the very least, be aware of that. And you want it to be relatively stable. Uh, you know, I can change a few percentage points. Uh, that's that's normal. And if you're looking to find some really good information, like these metrics we're talking about, for the most part, they'll be available on the investor relations side. So you don't have to calculate all of them. It's already done for you. If you can't find them, oftentimes they'll be in the supplemental information document. So usually they'll kind of have the official GAP or IFRS uh, documents that they have to publish. And then on top of that, they'll have that supplemental information. Yeah, for sure. And and thinking about those, like there's also ways that you can kind of combine a couple of different metrics as well. So, um, you know, we had discussed like one of the things that I've been looking at recently, because I've heard this sentiment a lot from people in, in institutional real estate is it's almost, it almost makes more sense for, because of the way the real estate market is right now. And the real estate market takes a long time for assets to correct in value. Um, it almost makes more sense for REITs to be buying back their stock than buying more real estate. So, you know, I mentioned um, some of these assets like, well, the downtown class A office would be uh, an exceptionally good example at 5.5 is for your double A class. Um, so that's that's what the cap rate would be, the net operating income divided by the purchase price. It's a valuation metric, kind of like, you know, valuing a stock based on EPS as an example um, or PE ratio. Um, and it, if you look at that versus the yield that their stock is giving, you know, Allied as an example, I think when I pulled it last was in the six percent range. Um, oh, it's almost seven percent now. I pulled it up while you were. Yeah, talking. so you're getting access to 
an asset class that if you were to go buy it on the open market, it would cost you, or you'd be buying it at a, at a you know, return-based valuation of in the five percent range. You're getting it in almost a seven percent. To me, that makes sense, right? And, I, and and you know, you hear about all of this um, rule number one investing or value investing plays, uh, like like Buffett. Am I getting this thing at a good price? And to me, I think there are certain ones that are, and there are certain ones that aren't. So that's one of the things that I like to look at. Is I don't, I wouldn't like necessarily put them all side by side and calculate which one has the best spread because these are very there's a, both numbers that jump around a lot cap rates and and their returns but am i confident that i'm getting buying the book of assets that this company owns at you know a better value than the market would be willing to pay there because that's your long-term hedge on the value of their underlying assets which is really the protection and the strength in that company and the longevity yeah, exactly. And I think for me, the the last thing I definitely always keep an eye on, especially in, you know, as everyone knows, interest rates have gone up a little bit uh, in the past year or so. And uh, so definitely having a look and just having a general idea of what debt looks like for this company, whether it's the leverage ratio, which is essentially just taking the total amount of debt versus the value of the assets. I mean, that's a little bit I think it's an okay metric. I don't know what your opinion is on that. Uh, it's just because the value of you know can change. I think it's just a general idea is probably the best way to put it. Yeah, I think t- typically it's you know if you're buying into a re you're you're usually doing it because you like real estate and you don't like leverage as much as because if you like real estate a lot and you're not afraid of leverage then you're often just levering up and buying real estate and so you know REITs are typically at a fifty percent leverage position the reason for that is so that we're not seeing major problems with you know, insolvency or them bleeding out or whatever. And they do have much better debt than the average consumer does, right? They're having investment grade debt. In in most cases, they get good facilities, they can issue more um, or issue for more. And so, you know, I don't think that it's something necessarily to worry about for the average real estate investment trust, Um, but always worth thinking about and just seeing, you know, if if you're if we're really thinking about it, I wouldn't be thinking so much as like how much do they have, but how how well is their income servicing it? So maybe looking at a metric like a debt debt service coverage ratio rather than total debt as an example. Yeah, no, that's that's perfect, and that is something I look at is the the interest coverage ratio. Uh, like you mentioned, invest grade versus non invest grade investment grade. I think that's really important personally, just because if they're refinancing, they'll get better rates on that. Uh, the type of debt that's something I always look at, just because if you see a high amount of revolving uh, debt. Um, that's a big alarm bell because revolving is essentially a line of credit and it's sensitive to interest rate hikes where if you have term debt, which will usually be on fixed term, whether it's secured or unsecured, secured means it's tied to an asset, unsecured means it's not tied to an asset. Um, something to be aware of, just how it's structured, especially right now with higher rates. Uh, that's something I've been looking at personally whenever I've started some position recently in REITs and I just make sure that there's not too much debt coming due in the next few years. Um, you know, they're, they all have some coming due, uh, but a lot of them, it'll be, you know, just a small amount. And as long as it's not overwhelming, cause you know, it's going to increase right when it's coming due. So, uh, that's the type of things I like to look at. Maybe I'm just a nerd, but, uh, or extremely cautious, <laughs> I think that that makes sense. Um, you know, as a rule right now in the market, when we're guiding direct investors, so people going to purchase property, we typically say if the cap rate isn't better than the interest rate that you're buying that property with, it's likely not 
going to be a viable investment. And so making sure again that the spread on the cap rate, the net operating income or the, you know, the ability, it's just does this do, does this company produce enough income to weather those? We know those increases are going to happen. Does it is it going to produce enough income reliably over the next 5 years to get through four or five different rollovers in in debt getting into potentially, you know, double the interest rates that they might have been in over the past couple of years. No, no, exactly. So now we'll move on. Look, are REITs good value right now? I think people can probably get a hint a bit how we've been talking. I think we both share a belief that there are definitely some sectors of the REIT market that are uh, pretty good value. Obviously, it's not without risk. Um, I pulled a, a chart here and I'll just explain it's pretty simple. It's from Sectors PDR, so it tracks the S&P 500 index and there's our REITs in the S&P 500 index. So basically, you know, the REITs uh, sector within it was the third worst performing of last year uh, behind communication services, consumer discretionary, and then you had technology and REITs at minus 28% um, in the past year. So it's done really poorly in terms of returns. And I pulled the stat that I got from NARIT, or the site is uh, www.reit.com. Great resource if you're looking to invest in REITs in general, but specifically in the US. And further 2022, uh, 2023 outlook, I mean, they we're looking back at 2022 and they pulled this stat where we were talking about recording, which blew my mind where REITs, like I just mentioned, were down 28% in 2022 versus private real estate funds being up 13%. So they are obviously making the case that that's a pretty wide discrepancy. I mean, it's 40%. <laughs> it is pretty wide, right? right. Um, so I just wanted your thoughts on that. Uh, is the public markets of you know, obviously being publicly traded, is it being too pessimistic on REITs? Are they freaking out too much about higher interest rate? Like what's the, what's your best guess on what's happening here? Yeah. So I think the, you know, the, the primary question becomes like, is this, is it an overcorrection? Is, is the market pricing in a lot of these changes inefficiently by comparison to, you know, what you could argue maybe more sophisticated investors who are in those private real estate funds who have access to those gated funds. One of there's there's going to be a couple of different elements. Number one is, you know, hearing about Blackstone REIT uh, freezing redemptions, right? So they're not allowing people to take money out of these REITs. So a lot of it could be, you know, they're forcing their investors to diamond hand, you know, in quotation marks and and not have these liquidity events that could prevent the returns from really maximizing because real estate is a is a long term hold, and it so, some of these repositioning plays if you really want to maximize an asset can take one two three years to even you know decades to really maximize the 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 vision of what that that asset holder is trying to do and in a you know in a private equity deal like a GPLP uh, general partner limited partner private equity deal um in a lot of cases they have more control over what the investor can do in regards to taking their money in and out um and not that that would matter too much for REITs cuz again that liquidity means that somebody else is 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 picking up those shares but um you you have a less in a lot of cases less sophisticated consumer um, consuming REITs, right? It's people who aren't as familiar with the asset class, who aren't, who don't have access to these almost pension fund esque private equity opportunities that you know that are that are performing at that plus thirteen percent, and 
you know, th- those people are more likely to be scared, more risk averse, offload the shares very quickly in a downturn and, uh, and being more pessimistic, like you're saying, in their pricing when we're heading into a recession. And so I think, you know, there is probably a little bit of a, an inefficiency in the market right now, almost like a dislocation in, in valuation uh, based on, on the returns that are available to each of those 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 two different almost types or styles of, of investing. Yeah, and Blackstone is an interesting case. I mean, I find Blackstone super complicated because they have so many different kind of investments, just not yeah, for sure. real estate. But, um, you know, I work in the pension retirement space, and I've seen that happen before, especially when the pandemic happened, where you have institutional grade uh, funds that froze redemption for a similar reason because it was so illiquid at the time. If there was a slew of redemption, they would have been forced to potentially sell some asset at a most likely discount. So that's what they ended up doing. They freeze the assets because let's be honest, you can probably always find a buyer, but you probably won't get the price you want if you're forced to sell. Right? Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, the, you mentioned pension side there as well. And I, I did want to touch on that a little bit. And I, I, we were talking about it before, but it was almost conspiratorially. But if you think about, um, you know, the way I think right now, the REIT space is, is cool, because it it's like a stock pickers market in the sense that like, you can pick an asset class. And if you pick the if you formulate the right investment thesis, if you think office reopening is going to be a big thing, a big meaningful thing. If you think Tiff Macklem's war on unemployment or war on, on um, uh, job vacancies is successful and he gets unemployment up and people have to and, and employers are now dictating whether or not people can return to the workplace, then offices probably will benefit from that as an example. That's that, that's not, not to say that that's what's going to happen, but you could formulate an investment thesis in either direction. And so I think there is a degree of polarity in like there are the range of potential outcomes is enormous. And if you pick the right potential outcome, you can probably make a lot more upside than you would be able to in a lot of other um, asset classes. And you can do it with a higher degree of safety, given you have the dividend yield, you have the underlying asset of real estate, etc. Yeah, and and of course we have the disclaimer, but it's not real. Uh, it's not investment advice. Obviously, uh, do your own due diligence here. But I think yeah, office real estate is very intriguing because. I don't think we're going back to pre-pandemic in terms of the amount of people working in an office, but I also don't think it's going to be like we've seen the past two years. I think it's going to be somewhere in between where I think a lot of organizations will try to be flexible with their employees and do a more of a hybrid model. That's what I believe, whether it's two, three days a week. But at the end of the day, if you go two, three days of the week, how much less real estate do you need as an organization? I mean... You can probably downside a little, downsize a little bit, but it really depends when people go. If everyone goes the same two, three days of the week, you still need a decent amount of office uh, real estate. So I think it's somewhere in between. And um, I started a position recently in Allied. Um, I'll probably add more to it. I actually just want to see what uh, management has to say on the whole Shopify lease thing, which sounds like there's stuff going like in behind the scenes a little bit, but um, I just want to see what they have to say on that. I think that's an interesting element of the discussion too, like, you know, Allied being probably the most exposed to the tech space, right? So you can also get, 
you can get layers of exposure to things like you know we buy uh, you know bullish on on the Walmart distribution center in Cornwall as an example, and so we can get real estate exposure to that thing. Um, so if you like tech, you know, an allied would be a decent place. So you can also look at the types of tenants that different REITs are are attracting as. Um, so that's piece number one. Piece number two is there was a lease sign. So the reality is like there is an underlying intrinsic degree of of um, security there. Your leases are your security, and you know it's not like individuals. It, it, this could suck in five years or when when a lot of these renewals aren't or people can't actually have the. Uh, tenants actually have the ability to downsize in the office space, but it's not as agile as one might think where everyone's like, oh yeah, we're done. It's work from home, you know, cancel or, or we're not paying you anymore, <laughs> yeah. right? So you're not going to see an impact on the bottom line for a while. Yeah. And we've seen tech companies kind of pivot on that, right? I think for a while, the the big tech, everyone was doing remote work and now more and more they're asking employees to come back. Um, so that's definitely interesting. And I mean, obviously the Shopify thing, they're still leasing space from Allied. So people kind of forget that as they do have a, a slightly smaller uh, space that they're renting from Allied. So I, I think they're going to come to some kind of agreement because if you already have them as a fairly important tenant, excluding the space they were committing to and they signed a lease on, you also want to have a good relationship because it you know, could also look bad for future tenants, right? If you know future tenants want to sign and says like, well, you know, if something happens, like it's kind of good to see that you'll work with us to try and make it work. So I think there's probably, uh, you know, well, I don't know. We'll see what happens, but I think there's something in the, the background happening. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that a lot of people dismiss is that the some of the largest holders of office assets, as an example, in Canada are pension funds. And so we almost have this degree of systemic dependence on that space doing well, right? And, uh, and so I think that, you know, that's probably in poly policymakers minds as well. Um, so I think that there's a lot of the, the, that the regular thesis, but there's also that piece. Okay, so I'm gonna finish here. Uh, I'll finish with some ETF ideas for people. But first, I'm gonna ask you a question. We didn't uh, I'll put you on the spot a little bit. So aside from office REITs, uh, do you have like, let's say two other subsectors of the, the REITs um, ecosystem? whatever we want to call it, that you think is looking pretty attractive right now? Um, I, I am really liking U.S. mortgage REITs. But again, like a lot of the ones that I would say, um, you know, the, just definitely do your homework on these things because they're they're high risk, high return stuff. Like you'll see some yields and they're just not sustainable. Yeah. You might get paid that for a couple of months. Um so I, I do like that space. I like, like, I think private lending is going to be especially important as people are getting pushed down that that um, that ladder into worse credit over the next couple of years. Um, so, pri you know, mortgage rates in the states and and mix in Canada would be a, a good comparison, um, definitely. And I think that there are some some ETFs that have exposure in the lending space. Um, and then, you know, the other piece would be, I think, Canadian banks as they start, like, as we start seeing more and more, so like, kind of going off script a little bit. Uh, outside of REITs, but um, as we start seeing more and more, like right now, your your fixed rate mortgage is often priced better than your variable rate mortgage. And the spreads, the the money that, that banks are making on fixed rate mortgages is amazing by comparison to variable rate mortgages, right? So variable rate typically is prime minus 65 basis points, let's say, or 95 basis points. So they're really not even making money on it, you know, assuming that their prime is true. Um, on a, on a, on a fixed rate, they're typically charging the GOC, the Government of Canada, five-year bond yield plus almost 
usually 2%. So GOC plus two. So GOC is at 3% right now that you can get a fixed rate in the, in the mid fives right now on the posted basis. So banks are a, from my perspective, a good exposure piece if you like the debt side. And I'm, I'm a lot more bullish on the debt side than the asset side in real estate right now, because I think that you can get exposure to other people's investment theses without the risk. Whereas if you're buying like assets are, they, they still haven't corrected in value from my perspective. Like those cap rates that we were just discussing, they, they need to come up significantly to be viable. And that means valuations, the prices need to come down uh, to make those returns make sense. So um, I don't, I'm, I'm honestly, other than office, I think allied being a great candidate. Um, yeah. I, I like office industrials is expensive. Um, retail, I think, Retail would probably be the next really big one. Rio can, you know, just as a very good example of people who own power centers, who own massive, you know, 20, 30 acre um, retail plazas, all of those, if you go look at the the development pipelines in most major municipalities in, in Canada, all of those high rise towers that are coming in are on power center, strip mall sites, you know, your old Walmart plazas. And so, you know, your smart centers, your... Um, choice properties, your Canadian tires, your Rio can, I think really those are from a, from a long-term perspective over the next decade, that's going to be a big theme as we deal with the housing scarcity problem that we have in Canada. As we deal with this housing crisis, more houses is going to be the solution and you need more land to do that and well-located land with municipal services and retail owners have that. That's no, that's a good point. I mean, I do like industrial. I know it's not as cheap and I know that compared to the cap rate, it's probably around the yield cap rate, probably around what uh, flush I would say. Yeah. Yeah. They're pretty, pretty pretty close. close, The reason why I liked industrial, it's because of what we've seen during the pandemic and the supply chain issues and now the issues we're having with China, I think we're going to see a lot more companies onshoring production um, and having, you know, we saw in the U.S., for example, in Arizona, we have Taiwan Semiconductors that is building a, a fab over there. So um, there is definitely, obviously, they're not an American company, they're, they're a Taiwan company, but it just shows that I think there's going to be a willingness to kind of forget the just in time and just making sure that you know you're prepared just in case something goes wrong so i think industrial REITs could really benefit from that um so that's why i'm a i'm a, probably a bit more bullish on on them than you but that that's the main reason and i think the valuations are quite reasonable uh for industrial REITs i would totally agree with that for sure i just um don't know from my perspective if there's like, I don't know if I don't see the development upside, not that you're really going to realize the development upside as a REIT investor in even in a lot of these REITs. Um, mm. But you know, there, there are definitely some layers of protection and you know, last mile being a huge thing in, in Canada distribution, we can't keep up with the industrial demand. And so you're going to see even if the cap rates aren't where we want to see them right now, all it takes is one lease term for what you get through five years at 0% vacancy in any of these and rates and your lease rates are going to start climbing very aggressively. And we've seen that happen in other asset classes. We, we're seeing it happen in the multifamily residential space right now. But you actually, they, you know, uh, industrial REITs or industrial landlords actually have the ability to negotiate with their their tenants on on those renewal rates. Whereas in the multifamily space, you can't and often you often can't capitalize on the rental increases because you can't evict tenants unless they're basically abusing the unit or not paying rent. No, exactly. Um, so I guess the last thing I wanted to finish off, like I said, uh, for those who 
don't want to look at individual REITs, which is fine. I know some people like investing, but they may find it a bit overwhelming. That's completely fine. So I'll give five different uh, ETFs that will provide you with some really good exposure. Two Canadians, three Americans. Uh, these are broad-based. Uh, the first two, VRE, which is the Vanguard FTSE Canadian Cap REIT Index ETF, has a management expense ratio of 38 basis points, so 0.38%. Uh, this one is uh, market cap weighted. The other one, the HCRE is the Horizons Equal Weight Canada Read Index. So the main difference here, again, they have similar names because we have about like, you know, 20 or... <laughs> 20 or so REITs in Canada, so you'll you'll notice the same names, but this one, they're equal weighted. So they're about 5% each in terms of weighting. So if you wanted something a bit more uniform, 30 basis point in terms of the management expense ratio. And then the three US are all very low fee, below 12 basis points each of them. So SCHA, this is a Schwab US REIT. USRT is the iShares Core US REIT and VNQ, the Vanguard Real Estate ETF. Um, all of them have similar names, but they are, you know, slightly different allocations. So definitely something to consider if you want exposure to the broad US REIT market. This will give you some, you know, you can just own one of the US ones and you're fine. Uh, the Canadians, same type of deal. You own one of them, you get exposure to all of them. Anything you wanted to add before uh, we let people go here, where they can find you, uh, you and your wonderful co-host, Nick? Yeah, so Nick and I have a podcast uh, on this network called the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. We talk about REITs, uh, I would say maybe once a month, um, but we also talk about direct investing in real estate and a variety of different ways to make money in the real estate asset class. And so... Uh, we'd really appreciate it if, if people checked us out. Um, we release on different days. We release our episodes on different days than the Canadian investor does as well. So if you, if you like listening to Braden and Simone, then you can, uh, you know, you can have Nick and I on the, uh, the Tuesdays and Fridays. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, thanks for joining us, Dan. Uh, I definitely can vouch for Dan and Nick that, uh, it's an amazing podcast. I mean, it's under our network, but, uh, I listen to, Almost all of them. Uh, usually, you know, I'm doing something else, but uh, I've learned a whole lot. So I'll keep listening and hopefully a lot of our listeners will, will enjoy that too. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.